Cattle branding is a practice that traces its roots a long way back. Archaeologists have found hieroglyphics pointing all the way back to ancient Egypt. It was an effective way of documenting and identifying which cattle belongs to you. When ranchers shared a pasture, they could easily differentiate them. Branding left a permanent mark on the hide of the animal. In the days of cattle wrestling, it was easy to say, that's my cattle, that's my mark, you stole it, and get back what, was, what rightfully belonged to you. It was a way to protect your livelihood. It's hard to cover up a branding. That mark is, is always going to be there, and it served a purpose in its time. Unfortunately, branding isn't only used on cattle. It's a dehumanizing practice that's also been used on humans, whether it's for marking property that belonged to somebody else in the days of slavery or drawing attention to a crime that's been committed, a scarlet, permanent scarlet letter, as it were. But branding is still practiced to this day. In an article from 2017, a girl by the name of Adriana, 17-year-old at the time, pointed to a tattoo that she received from her, we'll call him a boss, or more accurately, her, traffic, her trafficker. She got this mark when she was just 14 years old. It's a permanent marker to let everyone else know that she belonged to someone. And that idea is, is appalling to many people. But for Adriana, it brought her some sense of comfort she said, I, I was proud to have it. It says that I'm for you, that I will never leave you, that if I mark up my body for you, if I risk my life for you, I'll do anything for you. It gave her a sense that she mattered to someone, that she had a place, even if it was on the streets. It gave her a sense that she belonged. And if she ever doubted it, all she needed to do was glance down at the mark on her chest. When we first hear that, it sounds a bit of a foreign concept to us, doesn't it? How could anybody think that way? But it represents our need to belong. And many of us have done a similar thing, maybe not as permanent as a tattoo, but for those who are married, there's a wedding ring, a permanent reminder for us here of our love and faithfulness to one another, something we can point to. Or maybe it's wearing a team T-shirt to support our team in their athletic events. We want to show that we belong, and we want to know that we belong, that we fit in. We want to be legitimate. And so we doctor ourselves up so we can know that we belong. As Paul wrote his second letter to the Corinthians, he reminded them that he belonged. And not only did Paul remind them that Paul himself belonged, but he reminded the saints at Corinth that, yes, you too also belong. And in our text today, Paul points out to Paul points to our branding as confidence that comes from knowing that we belong. I invite you again to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as we read this text one more time. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And if you're able, I'll again invite you to stand out of respect for God's word. Reading in Jesus' name. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. 
such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Father God, these are your words, and your word is true. We pray this morning that you would sanctify us in your truth here today. Lord, open up our minds, our hearts, to receive the message that you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Paul starts with asking his readers if they really need a letter of commendation or a letter of recommendation. It's a fair question, it seems, right? To prove the point, if I were to go on a trip and this next Sunday I wasn't going to be here, who would you have come and fill the pulpit? You wouldn't pick some random person off the streets who you have no idea who they are. You wouldn't come, expect them to come and proclaim the word of God to you, right? I would hope not. Unless you are in a bind and all other options fail, and then we can make some certain uh, things slide just because we're in a bind kind of a thing, right? No, we don't do that because it matters. We would want to know that somebody who has been approved can come and fill this pulpit, whether it's someone from our own congregation or somebody else. We want to know that this person is able to decipher the word of God and proclaim it and declare it for us. Side note, there was a congregation one time that was without a pastor for a while, and they hired somebody to come and preach three sermons without ever really knowing this guy. And the first sermon was just an absolute train wreck, leaving the congregation thinking, what in the world did we get ourselves into? And we've got two more weeks left with this guy. I don't know if he continued to preach those next two weeks, if they went better or, or what, I, I don't know that. But there was no letter of recommendation with that. We don't operate without letters of recommendation, right? You wouldn't go to your neighbor to prepare your tax, taxes unless your neighbor was a certified tax preparer. You don't let your pers the person in your back door deal with all of your finances. You don't go to some random banker. You want to have a relationship with that banker, someone that you know that can be trusted, someone that you know that when you want to take your money out of the bank, it's going to be there. So you look for that little FDIC logo because that guarantees that everything's going to be fine and dandy, right? Talk to Lane about that afterwards, and he'll tell you more about that, that kind of a thing. But we look for these stamps of approval, these letters of recommendation. And Paul says here, do we really need a letter for you to believe and trust our ministry? It's, someone was going around sowing doubt in the Corinthians' minds about Paul's ministry, saying, hey, he's not the real deal. We're the real deal. Listen to us instead. And, and Paul comes after them and says, guys, listen. I am Paul. I am the one that came here and brought the gospel to you in the first place. In Acts 18, it records that Paul is the one who plants this church in Corinth, which is what Paul is getting at in verses 2 and 3. 
You are our letter of recommendation, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ. You were cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul's claiming here, I don't need any letters of recommendation to follow along with me in my ministry to be believed. The fact that there was a body of Christ, a body of believers present in Corinth is testament to his ministry of the gospel. Each one of the Corinthians' believers' lives was a letter of recommendation. A letter that Paul says is known and read by all men. The content of that letter, Paul says, points to Christ. Now, this wasn't something that the Corinthians could muster up on their own or decide to do in the morning. Say, you know what, today I think I'm going to wear a sticky note that says, claimed by Christ, and I'll put this on or take it off whenever it's convenient for me. It's not etched in stone. It's not scribbled on a sticky note. But what does Paul say? Something far greater than stylus on stone, something far greater than pen on parchment, that their lives were marked by the spirit of the living God. It was a part of their very being, written on their hearts. Paul's writing here to the saints in Achaia. And these are saved souls that he says in the end of chapter 2, they are the fragrance of Christ to God among the people in a triumph procession of Christ, giving this picture of something that the people in Corinth would have well known, historical context, a triumphant uh, procession or a triumphant parade, not like a homecoming parade that happens before a big game, but one of victory, where the captives are marched in front of everyone and stripped down and humiliated so everyone can say, we are better than you. And the people would burn incense. There'd be flowers thrown on the street. And you get this fragrant aroma of victory, sweet victory, filling up into your nostrils as you watch your people being paraded victorious over their captives. If you're on that aspect of the battle, on the winning side. If you're not on that winning side, then that becomes a smell of humiliation, a smell of death, Paul says in chapter 2. But he says here, you, brothers and sisters, are a fragrance of Christ to God. You are a fragrant aroma in a victory procession here. This is what you are, not what you do. This is what you are as a believer because of what Christ has done in you, because the Spirit of God has written his name in your hearts. The Spirit of God is the one who makes this possible. He is the one who has written on our hearts, who has figuratively branded us with Christ. Leaving the metaphor behind us, though, the Spirit of God unites us with Christ. As we think of what Paul says in Romans, you are baptized into his death, and raised to new life, we are connected and clothed with Christ. We truly are connected with him. And so we have the aroma of Christ. We've received the spirit and the tablets of our hearts have been claimed by Christ. He has written his name on your heart and so you belong to Christ and you are that fragrant aroma. This is the basis for Paul's confidence in verse 4. As he says, you are our letter of recommendation. The Spirit has done his job in your hearts. Your hearts are etched by the Spirit's pen. You belong to him. People read you. And when people read you in your life, they see Christ. And they're pointed again to the Savior. 
This is the basis for Paul's confidence in verse 4. We have confidence through Christ toward God. Paul's confidence in his ministry comes from this as well, not on his actions, but on the work of the Spirit writing his name on people's hearts. It allows, it's a, it allows Paul confidence in knowing that he is the aroma of Christ, and that he is a letter of Christ that is born solely of Christ in his work, read by all men. It allowed Paul to stand before the throne of God with confidence, as well as before these questioning Corinthians, and declare, I have a message from the Lord for you because the Lord has etched it on my very heart. Christ allowed these Corinthian believers, who, if you remember anything about this church in Corinth, had a lot of problems. He allowed them to stand before the throne of God with confidence because of our connection to Christ. Our connection to Christ allows us to stand confidently and boldly before the throne of God today and every day. Because we belong. We've been invited to worship the Lord. And we've been invited into his family. And we belong in his family. In life, there are a lot of times where you need to pick teams. Whether that's in grade school, when in gym class, where you have to pick teams. Whether you're a coach and you're trying to pick the, the best lineup for your team. Or whether you're hiring someone in a job or finding a position to serve in the congregation. It can be a stressful position when you're trying to pick and choose. There are those who always come across as the first picks. And you know who they are. Those ones that, that would just be great at everything that they do. And they're infuriating, aren't they? Unless you're one of them. And we love you. And uh, don't take it the wrong way. But then there's the rest of us whose only hope is, I just don't want to be last picked. As long as, there's, as, long as I'm not last picked, I'll, I'll be okay. And some of us are just hoping to be picked. But once you're picked, that stress doesn't end, does it? You need to live up to your rank. In the sporting analogy, think of all the draft picks who were picked to be the next greatest athlete and never really panned out to all the hype that was surrounding their name. There's a whole bunch of them. If you follow college sports, I'm sure you're aware of all kinds of them. And if you follow any professional sports, you know of even more people who had so much to offer, so much promise, but just flamed out. The stress doesn't end at the draft. There's pressure to live up to the expectations. Pressure to live up to prove that you belong. And some teams or some organizations use hazing to initiate people into their ranks, to say you belong because you've gone through this thing. They can be horrible things, and yet people willingly do it. What for? Because they want to belong. They want to know that they fit in. They want to know that they are adequate here. This pressure can and it will crush you. In verse 5, Paul points out where his adequacy comes from. He doesn't say I went through the best training program here. He doesn't say that I was first in my class and in seminary. He doesn't say that I've got all these different experiences here that make me suitable to bring God's message to you. It says it's not anything from inside of himself. And the Corinthians' adequacy doesn't stem from them inside themselves either. And your adequacy doesn't come from yourself as well. It's not that they bring just the right skill to the table that now that God has completed his team and he's picked the right people, he's just so lucky to have us on his side. But God is the one who makes us adequate. 
God is the one who brings us onto his team and who puts his name in our hearts and says, you belong. He makes us servants of a new covenant. That new covenant being the covenant based on the promise of God. The one that brings life in the spirit. Take note of this, friends. Our adequacy doesn't come from who we are or what we do. It comes from what God has done for us. It comes from the work of God in our hearts and mark of God on our lives who has called us. And nor are we even adequate in ourselves to be his letters. Again, using that sticky note analogy, we don't put a sticky note on us and say, now I'm a Christian today or now I fit in. But it's his spirit in our hearts that qualifies us for service in his kingdom. It's our connection to Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you are connected to Christ, you belong. And you belong here in this congregation as a part of the body of Christ. This belonging serves a purpose. And that purpose, again, is that we would be servants of this new covenant. This covenant of, of promise. And the word that's used here for covenant, when we think of covenant... We might think of, again, like a wedding ring kind of thing. I I covenant my life to you, you covenant your life to me, and together we will face whatever this world throws our way, a a bilateral covenant. But the word that's being used here is just a a one-directional thing, like a last will and testament. If you filled out a will before, you know you get to say where all my stuff goes. And your family doesn't get to bicker about it and say, no, I want this. No, mom said you get this and I get this and that's where it's going to be. It's a unilateral will here. This This covenant that we are ministers of. One person dictates the terms and that is God who does that. It's the promise of God for eternal life. This is the covenant that we are stewards of, that we are ministers of. The message that we bring to others. And this is our calling in life. This is our role on the team. This is our task in the body of Christ, wherever we are. In whatever position we find ourselves in, whether it's pastor, deacon, parishioner, child or widow, whoever we are, whatever station of life we are in, we are servants of a new covenant. We are letters of God that people can read and they can see Christ because of his work in our lives. We're servants of this new covenant, servants of the spirit that gives life. And we point people to Jesus. And when we feel inadequate for this job, just look back again at verse 5 and remind yourself that Christ is the one who makes us adequate. When we fail, when we stumble, when we sin, and we continue to go into those things, and we feel like miserable failures, remind ourselves again, go back to verse 5. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Look back at verse 3 and remember that the Spirit has branded our hearts. And as we proceed with our eyes set on the glory that is to come. Paul continues his message and he, he points people to the glory that is to come with this ministry of the Spirit which he talks about. He refers back to the time when Moses brought the Ten Commandments down. If you remember that story, he came down and his face was, was shining like the sun and the people said, Moses, we can't handle it. Turn your face away. We can't look at you because it's too glorious. And so Moses covered his face. But Moses didn't live the rest of his life with a bag over his face. That glory faded away. Not that the glory of the law ever faded away, but the glory reflecting on Moses' face faded away. 
The law reflected God's holiness to his people. A holiness that pained them to look at. Yet that's the point of the law. It was given so that we could see ourselves as we truly are. To reveal our weaknesses to us. To reveal that we are inadequate. To reveal our condemnation that we don't live up to the standards that God has set. And it was still glorious. It is still glorious to this day. But that glory couldn't result in life. It only resulted in condemnation. As we take a good hard look at God's law, we must admit that we don't measure up. And we spend so much time and energy trying to convince ourselves that we're not that bad. Trying to convince ourselves that there must be something that we can do to kind of doctor ourselves up to make ourselves stand in God's presence okay with a little bit of confidence. But that doesn't produce any real lasting confidence. However, when we look at the law of God, it brings, us, it brings about its glorious results in our own lives. It condemns us. It shows us our weakness, our failures. And it fulfills its purpose, bringing us to the end of ourselves to show us our need of a Savior. And then comes the ministry of the Spirit. And then comes this new covenant. God's desire for you is that you would be saved. God's desire for all people is that they would be saved. That they would be the inheritors of His promise. Paul asks a rhetorical question in verse 8, assuring us again that the ministry of the Spirit, the one that brings life to people, that imprints Christ and human hearts, is so much more glorious than the glory of the law leading to condemnation. In verse 10, Paul considers the glory of the law, again, which was glorious and which still is glorious. He's not saying it's nothing anymore, but he's saying the glory pales in comparison for the glory that is to come, the glory of new life in Christ. It's the same as when Paul says that he doesn't consider the sufferings of this world to be worthy to be compared to the glory that is to come. He's not saying life is all fine. It's all roses without thorns. He's saying there is suffering, but you don't know how good the glory is that we are striving after that has promised us in Christ. There just isn't any comparison to the glory that is to come. One of the ways that this glory of the ministry of the Spirit is far more glorious than the law is that it doesn't fade away. Moses' face faded back to regular old Moses' face. But the glory of the Spirit remains. As we continue to remain connected to Christ by faith and our lives continue to be nourished through His Word, our hearts are imprinted with his name and we live lives as a fragrance of Christ. That we are Christ's letter being read by all men. That people would see Christ in our hearts. That they would see the confidence and the comfort that we have in him. Because we belong to him. We are his. Not only that, he is doing a work in and through us. That though it may be hidden to us presently, and its glory may not be seen in its fullness yet, one day that glory will be revealed and we will see it as it is. The Spirit has come to give us life. You've been branded and you belong. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and for its truth. God, thank you that you do that work of writing your name on our hearts. Father, we pray that you would continue to keep us close to you. Thank you for inviting us to be into your family, for inviting us to come and to worship you. Lord, we know that we aren't adequate in and of ourselves, that we fall short on a daily basis. 
Lord, remind us once again of the gospel. Remind us of what you have done in order to call us your own people. Lord, we know what the wages of sin is. It's death. But we also know that free gift of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Help us to remember that and, Lord, to live confidently here on this earth. Father, we pray that as people look at our lives, that they would see your spirit inside of us. Lord, we pray that you would continue to do your work of making us more and more like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.